morning. Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now, don't lie to them like you did last week. Mean it this time, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about we wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you at both campuses. And then if you don't have a Bible, uh, take that one. Read it every single day because every time you read that Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Uh, three of you think that? Uh, every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, hey, if you're gathered with us at 213 North J Street, we're so glad that you're gathered at the Lompoc campus. We're so thankful for Pastor Tyler and all that God is doing at the Lompoc campus. If you're gathered online, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. If you are local, man, we just encourage you to be here in person. Uh, life is simply better together and you need someone more than you need sermons and so uh, use it supplementally but get in person and uh, and watch what God will do when you get connected to the body of Christ the people of God amen Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, which is the the last book of the Bible and uh, maybe the one of the most famous and most notorious books of the Bible. Because it's one of the most difficult books of the Bible in the genre and time and place in which it is written. And we've been journeying through for a, a few weeks now through the book of Revelation. And we're going to be in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 17. You can say amen when you're there. says this, and the angel of the Lord's, of the church, and, the, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, and I have, uh, you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Clear as mud. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace today. We thank you that you would help us in all things, bring glory to you and good to this valley. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Psalms 27, which I closed last week's sermon with, uh, I want to read to you today a Psalm of David. And I think it will bring some grander context to this particular passage and kind of anchor for us. David says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. In whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not feel fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Pergamum was a city in Turkey. And it still is there today under a similar name. And this city, uh, Pergamum, uh, had a, a culture that uh, was diverse and had all of these influences. It wasn't quite the port city of Ephesus, but it had become a cultural hub. Many, uh, even archaeologists today, go back and look at the ruins in Pergamum and go, why is this place not famous? When you went into the city, it had an acropolis a thousand feet high where all of these temples, this high place where all of these temples would be made to all of these pagan gods. And then uh, in 133 BC, after the death of Alexander the Great, the last king of Pergamum, Uh, bequeathed all of his um, territory to the Roman Empire. They were the first to go, no, we're going to support the cause. We're going to support the global empire that is Rome. And and they actually the first to openly support uh, the, uh, the imperial cult that was happening in Rome. It wasn't always this way, but what had developed and what happens is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people begin with power and authority. You can imagine each emperor and, and each Caesar being given power and authority over Rome and kings giving up their territory and their property and their people. All of a sudden they begin to have delusions of grandeur about themselves. They begin to hear in their ears the words of the enemy, you are a God. I mean, it's the famous story of Marcus Aurelius who said that he had, he had hired a servant to stand behind him always when he was conquering, when he was in battle, when he was ruling. He had a, a slave stand behind him and say, you are just a man. And yet, as many as can tell themselves and what it's passed down, many emperors and Roman Caesars begin to believe that they were deity. They were to be worshipped as 
gods. In the time of Jesus, by the time we get there, the cult of Rome, where Caesars are believed to be uh, demigods, and, and somehow when they die, they transcend and become deity. And, and it would have been uh, Roman soldiers who would have had coins in their pockets. And on the inscription, as they saw Caesar's picture on the coin, it would say, the son of God. That's why Jesus is famous for saying, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God that which is God's. In Pergamum, this was a hub of this imperial cult. And they actually had the first temple to the Roman Empire. And then there were these other gods. One famous is Asclepius, which is a serpent god of healing. And in this temple, there would have been this serpent god who they would go to and believe that somehow this was a place of healing. And now even we would look back on some of the starts of how they would uh, treat people and, and, and how they would give cures to individuals. And some would even suggest that this was a place of modern medicine and kind of the starts from the, Greek, uh, the Greeks and the Romans would, would pass down and give us some of how we take care of people today. So in this place, there's this hub of, uh, of religion and, and religious beliefs and all of these different deities and even the worship of the government and the one who's in Caesar and then this group of people who say they hold the keys to healing and health in this city try to keep up and think that maybe uh, this could be relevant for us today. Somebody say, oh no. All of a sudden you begin to look back in these ancient texts in these cities and you realize that some of the problems we have today are ancient problems that we've been dealing since day one. See, Pergamum was a place where the pagan religions and the worship of emperors and their belief that these gods could bring health and healing and all of a sudden this kind of devotion to these gods and to this way of life and to this culture and it was kind of get in get in where you fit in and you better not get out of line and then John writes this letter, this letter given to him by Jesus. See, we've been talking about what the book of Revelation is, this book that, that we've been trying to navigate for thousands of years now that gets put in our pop culture and it gets put in our movies and, 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 and we're all kind of, uh, you either really love the book of Revelation or you've probably never read it or you've been afraid to read it, Right? Like, like, and, and if you're one of those people who love to read it, praying for you. Uh, it, it stresses me out, okay? And, and some of us, like, let's be honest, that, that some of the Bible studies when I, when I was younger, like, you ever been to one of those, like, uh, Bible studies where they got to pick whatever they wanted to, to study, remember that? And then you wrote on the little note and you put it in and you're going to, like, and everyone wrote, we want to go through Revelation. 
right? You remember what that was like? I mean, people want to look at it. They want to study it. But can I be honest? Man, it is puzzling in how we interpret it. And we've been talking about different means of interpretation, how you particularly look at this passage. And here's when we get to this city, this is one of these grounding moments for us. This is one of those moments where we go, okay, this was to a particular city, to a group of people. How do you know? Well, he begins to talk about what's actually going on in this particular city. Now that you have context, there's this, this Acropolis to all of these gods. There's even even this God of healing that actually is represented by a serpent and people go to and they, they trust it and they have allegiance to it. And he writes this, John gets this revelation from Jesus and he says, write to the angel. And we've been talking about this angel. It was particularly a church personified. It's as if he's saying you're this church that has a life being to it, just like Crossroads Church has almost a personality to it. You can describe it. You tell somebody like, like the first thing you say is got the best coffee. And in Lompoc, it's got cold brew on nitro. Thank you, Pastor Tyler. And Bilton did not say amen to that. Uh, they're like, wait a second, they got cold brew over there? What are you kidding me? I'm, I'm kicking it to the Lompoc campus, right? And, and so he says to the angel at the church of Pergamon, in other words, to the church at large, to the life that is the church. He says, write these words. And then he says this, I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. And what a statement that he's beginning to say. Like, like we know that, 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 that Satan, this idea of thrones, like this is the first thing we have to wrestle with. Is he talking about a literal throne or a spiritual throne? Now, throughout the Bible, even when it talks about God's throne, it doesn't talk about an earthly throne. It talks about a heavenly throne. And I peered into heaven and I saw the ancient of days seated on his throne. And so, so, so we know that Satan is a spirit being. And maybe if you've not been around church or something like, well, wait a second, like you believe in spirit beings and Satan and, and demons? And the answer is yes. And even if you don't believe in him, he believes in you, friend. And he's got a plan for you. And that plan is opposite of God's plan for you. And you need to be wise to the schemes of the enemy and the wickedness of Satan. Uh, one of the great quotes, and it gets even quoted, I even heard Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan podcast, not that I listen to that often. Uh, I heard him even talking about this and pondering the reality of if there actually was a Satan. And he said, what's that quote? And it was made famous by a modern movie, and I forget the actor's name, but it's made famous from an early philosopher. It says, the greatest trick of the devil was to convince people that he does not exist. We live in a society where we, we've removed from that. And, and yet Jesus himself 
says to this church. It's like a, a small letter. We talked about last week these little letters that were writing to Ephesus and Smyrna, now Pergamum. They're almost like small epistles like we read Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. They're letters. Those were from Paul. And these are actual letters from Jesus himself revealed to John. And he says, write to the church at Pergamum. And here's what I want you to tell him. And he says this, I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. You can imagine that these first readers, maybe they looked up at the Acropolis and they saw these thrones, these temples, and it could be Zeus's uh, temple. It, it could be this temple to the God of healing and, and, and medicine represented by a serpent. Most believe what he was essentially saying was that this imperial cult to the Roman Empire, this, this empire that now is spreading its wings throughout all of the known world. And here in this city, this was the first place to begin to worship Caesar as God, to worship the Roman Empire. And he says, this is where Satan's throne is. And here's some things that I think we need to think through and, and wrestle through. And maybe you're someone who, who's a skeptic of this kind of thing. Or maybe it causes for you even the idea of Satan and sin and, and, and then in, in the kind of inner workings of the humanity of man and, and man having free will and being able to do good and to do evil. That, that begins to rub against a kind of philosophical idea of, okay, how could God make man who could potentially become sinful? How much more could God, who's made all things, create a being like Satan? Like this whole book is, is like kind of uh, taking the roof off of the thing and looking through a spiritual lens and going like this is a cosmic battle between good and evil and God and Satan and his demons and his inner workings. And already he gets to a letter where he says, listen, you dwell where Satan's throne is the inner workings of Satan. He's working out of this hub, out of this religion, out of this worship of Caesar, out of this, this need that man has to be known and to be great. And he feeds on it and he's caused man to commit the sin that he committed, which is to put himself in the place of God. C.S. Lewis uh, writes and answers this kind of philosophical question. It begins to help us understand God in his nature in designing and creating beings that have free will. Because somebody might ask, and C.S. Lewis is the one who kind of lays this out. I'll, I'll kind of try my best to, to butcher this as best I can. Uh, but he begins to lay out this argument. Someone may ask the question, how could a good God create beings who could go so wrong? Like, like, that's the idea. Like, we look out into the world, and right now we look at, at, at what's going on with, with men like those in Hamas who would do horrible, wretched things, and yet they were created by God. 
So is this a, an attack on the nature and goodness of who God is? See, here's what the Bible leaves for us. It leaves us answers about who God is and about who man is and the problem of sin. It's not a religion that kind of removes itself from these conversations. It actually peers into the heart of man. It actually looks where man goes wrong. And yet God has created us in his image and has given us free will. So you ask the question, how could something go contrary to the will of a good God? How many of you have children? How many of you feel as though you're a good parent? (sighs) Leave it up to you to decide, right? Like how many of you have good plans for your children? How often do those plans go different than the will that you had for them? Okay, now we're on to something. Right? Uh, like the idea is this, is you can have a will for your child and even inside of that, you, your will for them is that they, they might have a clean room. They might be tidy and, and pick up. But there comes a point where you stop doing that for them and your will is to teach them to be tidy and to clean up for themselves. And some days it goes according to your will and then some days it goes more often than not, it goes contrary to my will at my house. Come on, somebody. Young men and women, clean your room. Amen. Right? Like, uh, like there are some things, and so, so someone may ask, well, what did God, like, what was the, the crummy stuff that God made man with that man could go so contrary to his Will. See, at every level of creation, there is exacerbated the levels in which something can be good and bad. See, good and bad immorality come in with the design and designer of that creation. And so God has plans and a will, and He's made us free will agents. And see, at every level of creation, see, there's only so good a dog could be and only so bad that a dog could be. A child can be only so good and so bad. A man, a strong man, a genius of a man. Then how bad could a spirit being made in heavenly places strong? How wicked could this being become? At every single level, what we put on display is that God has made us in his image and in his creation of the heavens. He created an angel that we know is Lucifer. And in Lucifer, he had light coming out of his body. The Bible would tell us that, that, that it's as if his body made music and instruments. He was a, a, an archangel who stood and covered the throne of God. And yet he didn't want to be in the presence of God. He wanted to be God. And the Bible tells he fell like lightning. 
and that he is a fallen, and he took a third of the angels with them that are now known as demons and demonic spirit beings who are doing his work and his bidding. Why? Because God has created his creation underneath the goodness of his will, and these beings have gone astray, and there's a rebellion against God. And in that rebellion... God to put on display the goodness of his nature made man, not spirit beings, but lowly dirt man. From the dirt, Adam, he makes man and he takes this mud pie, if you will, and he puts his image on it. An insult to injury of the spirit beings. He's given us his image. He made man above the animals, lower than the angels, but seats him in heavenly places. Oh, who is man, oh God, that you are mindful of him? He puts on display, he takes the foolish things to confound the wise. He takes the weak to put to shame the strong. And in this cosmic battle of good and evil, man is here with the image of God in this earthly place that has the remnants of a spiritual place where heaven and earth co-reside, where the fragment of sin, Satan deceives man and causes him to join the rebellion. And yet God in his goodness and his mercy. Why is it that he didn't have a plan of redemption for these spirit beings? I do not know. But because we are made in his image and his love and his care for us from the very start of our rebellion, knowing that making us in his image and giving us free will and giving us autonomy and choice because he loves us and cares for us and gives us a choice of love and a choice of right and a choice of wrong, a choice to do good and a choice to do evil. And we can go really good and we can go really bad. And yet God has a plan of redemption for all of us. And from the start of creation, he says, I got a plan for you. He says, the seed of a woman will come. He tells the serpent, he will, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And the plot moves on. And we get to the book of the Revelation. That's from the start of the book. And then we get to the back of the book. And it says there's a group of people there's a group of people in a city in the middle of Satan's throne where Satan has set up his place where he is manipulating and he is deceiving and he is luring away just like he did in the garden. And there's a group of people right smack dab in the middle of where Satan does his work. And he says to them, here, I know where you dwell and yet you've held fast to my name and you did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. This word witness is where we get also the word martyr. 
So he says that something's happened. And how he writes this letter, he writes to this specific city. And here's another kind of, uh, of handhold for us and how we interpret this book is this is to a group of people, a specific group of people. How do I know? He uses somebody's name. He says Antipas was a faithful witness and they killed him. And even in the midst of one of your own, could you imagine? You're living in a city and you're gathered together. And what's happened is, is there's this news of this resurrected Messiah, this King Jesus, that Caesar's not king, but Jesus is king. And it's beginning to spread. And Paul was in Ephesus just a, 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 a few miles, really, from Pergamum. And it says that Paul set up in a theater and began to preach the good news of Jesus for two years. And no one in Asia had not heard the good news. One of those places being Pergamum. They'd heard about this and they're beginning to wrestle with, man, we're worshiping this man, this Caesar. We're worshiping this guy who set himself up and yet I see the wickedness that he does. And yet there are these Jesus people There are these people of the way and goodness and suffering in the face of immense persecution and wickedness, loving their enemies, seeking to do good, not repaying evil for evil, but turning the other cheek. They're giving, they're serving. They seem like they're onto something and it seems like it hits us from the innermost parts of who we are. I'm beginning to question my ideology. I'm beginning to question my religion and my upbringing. I'm beginning to question this man who sets himself up as God. And I heard that he also heals and delivers and he gives a different way of life, this serpent God of healing, man, I want nothing to do with that. And all of a sudden, they're in the middle of a city that is causing them to be at a crossroads, pun intended. They're having to choose, will I go along to get along? Will I do what the culture wants, what the city wants? Will I actually say what I believe? We don't know exactly what's happened, but it says you did not deny the faith, which means in this verb tense is it actually happened. He's, Jesus is actually speaking to a situation that they would have all known about. And we don't know what happened. Was it mob violence? Was it that people broke into their house church because they were no longer worshiping and they made a, a, an example of Antipas? But it says that they killed one of their own and yet the people around, and think about that scenario. Think about one of us being drugged out, one of those being put to death, one of us being executed for our faith. How many of us we'd have to wrestle with would step up and also not deny? Or we'd say things like, I don't, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be a part of that. And yet he says, he commends them. He says, listen, even in the midst of that, you held to the faith and you did not deny. And you did this where Satan dwells. But then he says this, but I have some things against you. (sighs) And yet you hear that, you shouldn't hear it as a critical father who, 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 who you feel like, man, I can't get anything right. You should hear it as a loving father who goes, man, I'm not going to tell you you're perfect. How many, how many of you have those? How many, how many firstborns in here? 
right? Still wrestling with your mistakes. You're like, I didn't get a 90, I got a 99? Amen, firstborns, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, no, no, I love you. And my criticism to you is only to help you. My, my honesty with you is, is so that you don't get pulled astray. I'm not just going to give you enticing words. I'm not just going to tell you you're amazing. I'm not just going to preach sermons where, listen, everything's going to go well with you. And if you trust Jesus, you pray, it's going to happen. And if you give, it's going to multiply. And if you go and speak, it's going to work out for you. I want to be honest with you that you're in the middle of a war, a cosmic war, and Satan has plans for you and you dwell in the middle of his throne and so let me be honest about what you're doing well and you're doing a great job but but let me let me help you with this blind spot he says this he says you've been doing good you've been holding fast you did not deny the faith but i have a few things against you Some of you are holding to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. Here's what, and I won't go into the, the whole story, but here's the idea, is that Balaam, a false prophet, if you will, in the Old Testament, convinces the children of Israel to, to, to be lax in their morality. He convinces these men, or in other words, inside of the church, there becomes these doctrines of sexual promiscuity and sexual immorality that begin to say, no, 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 like, hey, God doesn't really care about that aspect of your life. He only cares about this aspect of your life. And all of a sudden, there begins this landslide, if you will, with the leaders in the church and the people of the church. They, they kind of move away from those difficult passages of behavior and and morality, and here's what he's essentially beginning to say. He's saying that you're actually falling for the same kind of thing. And then he goes on and he pairs this with, he says, you're convincing them to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to practice sexual immorality. Let me frame that and interpret that for us. There's one word where he says, uh, to um, one Greek word where we translate the whole phrase, food sacrifice to, to idols. The same word could be used for meat that was bought in the open public market. And so because uh, Jews grew up with this idea of kosher foods, and one of those things was there was a ritualistic kind of way in which they prepared their food, and, and this particular, there was a reason for it, a deep reason for it, was that they were oftentimes being pulled away into these feasts and festivals where they didn't realize where it seemed like a good time and a party, but all the people there are pledging their allegiance to a false God, and they're doing it through this feast and this party. And everybody's having a good time. It didn't seem like it was a big deal at all. And yet, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, when he begins to get, uh, the council gives instructions, when Gentiles are being added to the church, and they're trying to figure out, like, there's all these cultural things, like, all right, when I go to church, what do I wear? What do I eat? What can you bring to the party? All those things, what's acceptable to the potluck? Are we bringing wine? Are we bringing this? Are we allowed to eat this? Are we allowed to drink that? Those are questions that happen today, let alone in early 
first century Jews who were converting to Christianity. Now they're going, wait a second, what are we allowed to do and not allowed to do? Now Paul wrote extensively in the New Testament where he writes and goes, no, listen, all things are, are permissible meaning all things are allowed. It's not sinful. Jesus says this, what goes into a man doesn't defile him. It's what comes out of his heart that causes him to be evil. And yet so many of us, what we eat and, and what we take, man, that, that isn't the real issue. The heart is the issue. Are you following along with me? And so here's what the Jerusalem council said to Gentiles. He said, listen, here's what you, you'd be well to do this. You'd be well to abstain from sexual immorality and not eat food that is sacrificed to idols. And you're like, man, what's this idol thing? Well, here's what happens is uh, there's some things that go down at dinner parties when people have had a few drinks that you didn't plan on doing. There were some things at some parties and some festivals, and and, and there were some things that would happen that if they went to the festival, that it seemed as though this bad company would corrupt good morals. And he says, "You, you would do well if you just stayed out of that mix. Seems like some pretty good practical advice. Somebody say amen to that. And so he, he begins to write this, and you can imagine this was much different than your average party. This was a feast that the whole city, man, uh, man, Coachella and Woodstock have nothing on what the city of Pergamum would do at these festivals and this lifestyle of these Greeks who were being saved. They had no concept of a righteous life. And a sexually pure life. That was something that was often, it was the mind and the body were separate. And so what you did with the body did not affect the mind and the soul. And yet Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. He goes, these are intertwined. They're intertwinkled together. You can't separate them apart. What happens with the body will touch the soul, friend. It's why we encourage young people to abstain. It's not that God is trying to keep you from good things. Sexual intimacy with your spouse is a gift from God. And outside of that can be damaging to the soul. And so I'm praying for you, young person. I'm praying for you, single person. I'm praying for you, married couple, that you would see one another as a gift from God and that purity in your marriage and the beauty of sexual intimacy would be a part of your life. But here's what was seeping into this church and what has seeped into the church of America is that human sexuality is off limits from speaking of when it comes to the Bible. That God should stay out of the bedroom, and yet it was God who gave you the bedroom. Someone say, uh huh, Right? And he says this, he goes, listen, I, I want to help you. Here's what's happened, is that you wanting to be liked and the slippery slope. What was happening then and what can happen now is this need for intimacy, this need for belonging. And man, these are my friends and we're just having a good time. We're going to the party, we're going to the festival. And yet, 
All of a sudden, I'm caught up in a slippery slope, and I have no leg to stand on. And when I would talk to them about what they should do and how they should behave, I've not set the example. I've not lived up to the standard. And he says, listen, I have this against you. Yes, you've stood for the faith. Yes, you're not bowing down to any idols. But man, you're a little loose at the party, and you're letting things fly, and you're not able to share the gospel. That there is this battle, and the enemy wants to lure you into a drug drunken slumber, that you would not be sober-minded and awake to see the schemes of the enemy. And he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk and filled with the Spirit of God that we live and move and have our being. Oh, that's good preaching, Pastor Sam. Thank you. (laughs) And this is what he's saying. He goes, yeah, 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 you've stood, you've held the flag. Man, what could happen? And I know you live. He tells us, you live right in the middle. Think about our context. Think about the relevancy of this passage. Those of us who live in a sexualized culture, those of us who lived in in an era, we live right in the middle of a culture just like that, that every time we turn on the TV, every time we look at our phones, man, we're bombarded. And and, and yet we are called, and we're like, man, I don't want to be a bigot. I I, I don't want to be rude. I I want people to like me. I don't want people to think I'm judging them. And and, and so I'm just going to go along to get along and hear the words of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I have this against you. You've allowed this doctrine into churches that are now teaching that sexual immorality is not sin. It's something to be admired. And actually, your identity is found in your sexual orientation. That what you crave and desire, that's where you can find yourself. And this is a scheme of the enemy. This is a manipulating tactic, pulling away our youth, pulling away our culture. And he's saying, listen, I'm telling you, this is the start. This is the doctrine of a demon that pulls us away. In a city where health and wealth and hedonistic pleasure is king, Jesus says, repent, repent. And if you don't, I'll come and war against you with the sword from my mouth. Notice what Jesus starts this letter with and what he finishes with is the antidote for us today. Many of us can hear the words that are being written to the, the church in Pergamum and we can, we can relate. I, I don't have to go far to, 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 to show you the relevance of what's being said to Pergamum and what can be said to us and how we have to wrestle with it. We have to go, man, God, help me with where I'm at because here is what Jesus is saying to us. Repent, change the way you think. What's that start with? It starts with words. It starts with his word. It starts with truth. Man, wash me in the water of your word. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew in me a right spirit. 
David says this, I hid the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against God. Notice that in this cultural climate, where people are being pulled away by false doctrines, false ideology, and a promise of health and wealth and prosperity. Well, Pastor Sam, where are you getting that health, wealth, and prosperity? They got a temple to Caesar, who they think that if they get in line with him, if, if I stay in line with the government and those over me, because that is my source, they flipped it, convinced them that the Roman Empire and the allure and glory, the glory of Rome, that if you'll bow down to the glory of Rome, some of the glory of Rome will fall off on you. I mean, I want to get on like, a, like I want a booming economy. I want a culture where, 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 where we're prospering. And I, I don't really, I don't want to step out too much. I, I don't want to be too bold in my faith. I, I don't want to be too out and peculiar because, man, that may affect my business. So what happens? The worship of Rome. Friends, let me say this carefully. Let me say what what they were dealing with and what we are tempted to deal with now is their identity was found in this government that was ordained by God, corrupted by Satan. Government can be good. Government's ordained by God to help and punish evildoers, but Satan has corrupted and I, I had someone during the COVID-19 pandemic as we're trying to wrestle with what we're doing and what we're not, and someone said to us, don't you think the government has our best interests in mind? No! <laughs> Friend, you don't have your best interests in mind. No, I don't. Why? Because the government's full of people that are not God. And they worshiped the government. They worshiped Caesar. Friend, be careful. Be careful. See, what is worship? Worship means your whole identity revolves around it. it means you, you'll identify with it. Let me, let me just help you. Let me say this out of love and kindness. Is that you have to be careful that your politics and your political party is not what your life revolves around. Friend, you can't be full MAGA and be a Christian. And you can't be a hardcore Democrat and be a Christian. And he will war with a two-edged sword from his mouth. See, the truth is what sets us free. Friend, be careful that your politician does not become your God. And how do you know he's your God? Is you will only say the good things and never the faults. And here's the thing that makes him a man and not a God, is God has no faults. God has no sin. Man does. And you could be honest about the candidate that you vote for. You could say, man, this is good about them. This is not. This is the pride that they're succumbed to. And listen, I'm saying that with humility because, listen, at best, we are all prideful men and women pursuing humility by the grace of God. 
Your identity is never meant to be found in the politics of the world, in the government of the world. Be careful that you don't succumb to it. Don't be careful that more people know you for your conservative values than your Christian values. Sometimes they overlap. But what's at the forefront? That I'm a follower of Jesus. Because that's the only place my allegiance lies. That's the only place that I can find life. That's the only place where there's actual truth. And in a place where all of a sudden the medical community has become a God to them. You don't remember what that was like, do you? We're in the same type of situation. Where they go, no, 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 if you trust us, if you serve us, you'll be whole, you'll be healthy. And don't criticize us. Because when you criticize me, you criticize science. Man, this is the, the trappings of men playing gods. And yet, it plays on our instinct. The instinct that we have, the fear of death and the longing to be known. The enemy will use this. He's used it. We've seen it at practice. This isn't an ancient text. This is a living text that before us, we deal with the same situations. We're at the same crossroads. Will we bow down? Will it be doctors and pharmaceutical companies who through their, their commercials, have you seen this? Like we're the only, there's only two countries that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise and I feel like every time I take one of these drugs I'm gonna be frolicking through the woods with my friends. It's like every single commercial is like, like Psalms 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Just wait for the side effects at the end. That one was free. <laughs> right? What, what, what is that? What is that? It was the same then. If I go to this temple, if I go to that clinic, now I got no problem with, man, God's given doctors wisdom, guidance. And there are things that help. But listen, your hope and your trust and your faith is never meant to be put in those things. But if I just take this pill, or if I just go get this shot, or if I do that, I'll be healthy and whole if I just go with the thing. No, 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 friend. That's an idol. Your peace is not found there. It's in the Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. Be aware you're in the middle of a fight. Satan is warring, and he uses schemes and people in high places. Just be careful. Be sober, repent. How do I do that, Pastor Sam? I eat this book. I get in the word. I'm sustained by the word. I'd be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed that I can rightly divide truth. I'm in this thing more than, I, more than I'm on my phone, more than I'm on social media, more than I'm on TikTok, more than, more than I'm watching my TV. Read this book. 
three of the old schoolers were like, hey, man, what's wrong with you people? Lompoc was like, yeah, say that, bro. Here's what he says. He says, if you repent, I'll give you hidden manna. Jesus says, I have food that you know not of. I'll give you swords. I'll give you word. I'll give you, man, I'll actually show you where fuel comes from, where purpose comes from. I'll show you. I'll reveal it to you. And he says, I'll give them a white stone. Now, this one was, this one was wild to think about. But in the ancient world, a white stone, a rock, was, was synonymous with an innocent verdict. He says, repent. And he's essentially saying, I'll give you food. I'll give you heavenly food that sustains you. I'll give you life. And I'll give you a clean slate. White as snow. I'll wipe away. You can be found justified and clean. And he says, I'll give you a new name. A name that's hidden in heaven. That no one knows but me. It's as if God's got this nickname for you. He's got this pet name for you. Man, I'll make you a child. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you a clean slate. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you purpose. There's purpose in a name. He says, let me, let me convince you. Friend, here's what I want you to take away. That everything is preaching a sermon. Every show you watch, every advertisement you see, every book you read, every person you talk to, everything on your news feed. And will you go along to get along? Will you allow a slippery slope when you're with your friends when you're at the dinner table, when you're at the feast or the festival, will you allow, man, I don't want to, I want to make waves. I just want to be, I want to be a good time. I want to have a, I want a good time at the party. I want to make sure everyone likes me. I'll be social. I'll flirt to convert. You don't, you don't remember that youth group strategy? Yeah, you do. You showed up to youth group, young man, because there were cute girls at that youth group. That's how, that's how most of you old-timers got saved back in the day. Come on, InterVarsity. Come on, Lee Owens, I see you. The same is true, man. I, I, I'll be nice to them, and then I'll try to convince them that Jesus is the way. That's not how it works. You being you, you standing, holding tight, you creating a pocket of heaven with your family. You showing them a different way, a counterculture, that we, that we have a different way of life. Come and be with us. We'll show you who Jesus is. Man, that's where it's at. Not being afraid, holding on too tight to your business and your reputation, but standing on the firm foundation. Jesus says this, and build your house on the rock. Because the one who builds his house on sand, when the storms come, when the wind rages, and that's how you can see the testament between those who follow Jesus and those who don't, how they go through trial, how they go through sickness, 
how they go through mourning, how they go through when the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. They look at the church and go, why do you guys have peace? How do you have hope? That's you, friend. That's your testimony. C.S. Lewis said this, what shall we do and how shall we live in the age of the atomic bomb? See, we've grown up like that's just a reality, but could you imagine the 1940s, early 30s, when the reality and this invention of the atomic bomb happened? When all of a sudden this was a reality. You mean that somebody has something that could destroy the world? Do you imagine what it was like to preach the book of Revelation in 1940s in the regime of the Nazis and Hitler and concentration camps? What you would read into this book and what that would look like. And some people are end times hustlers and doing those things today. But C.S. Lewis says, what shall we do in the age of the atomic bomb? And I'll say this, what shall we do in the age of Hamas? What shall we do in the age of wokeness? What shall we do in the age of a slippery slope of morality in our culture? What shall we do in an age where people no longer look like, man, this isn't the country that I thought it was. What shall we be doing? Feeding children. Bathing children. Eating meals together. Loving one another. What shall we do when Jesus comes back? The same thing we do every day. Worship and enjoy Him forever. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, You are good and you are good to us. Jesus, we have so many things in our culture that the enemy uses to pull us away or to manipulate us and cause fear. But Jesus, you're good and you give us your word and it cuts to the heart. I pray for those today. All of us at some point feel convicted. But that conviction is your love for us, pulling us and pushing us and stirring us towards goodness. Help us to stand firm, to hold fast, to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but every cunning scheme of the enemy. We thank you for this passage that you've left for us in the book of Revelation and how it parallels our culture today and how we can learn from it. But what this does most of all is cause us to put our trust in you and turn our love towards one to another. We thank you that you would help us build a community that is heaven on earth a space and a place of love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit of God. And we thank you that you're building something and you're doing something 
And when we think you're doing one thing, you're actually doing billions. And it is for your glory and our good. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?